Welcome to the Generation One Lunchtime Lecture Series. Before we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to the opportunity to join UCL's climate campaign, Generation One, where you can pledge your commitment to reducing your contribution to climate and also inspire others by sharing your pledge on social media. So for more information, visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash generation dash one. I'd also like to remind you that at the end of the talk, there will be a Q&A session. So please place your questions in Slido. Uh, to do so, you would have received a link via email, but if not, go to Slido and enter the event code UCL lectures. If you'd also like to tweet about the event, please use the hashtag UCL generation one. I'm Dr. Eloise Marais. I'm an associate professor in physical geography in the Department of Geography at UCL. And I work on understanding the health emergency caused by exposure to air pollution from the fossil fuels that are also altering our, our climate. So I'm particularly interested in today's talk by Professor Mark Maslin. I'm sure you are all very aware of Mark's work and the substantial contribution he is making to the discourse on what needs to be done to achieve net zero. But for those of you who aren't, Mark is Professor of Earth System Science in the UCL Geography Department. Mark's research spans timescales from the very distant past to the future to determine the influence of climate change on the global carbon cycle, on biodiversity, on rainforests, and on human evolution. And today, we'll, he will be providing us with insight on what we need to do to save our planet from the devastating consequences of anthropogenic climate change, drawing from his best-selling book, How to Save Our Planet. And now, I'll hand over to Mark. It is a joy to be talking to you, particularly as this is the week before COP26 and the expectations for this meeting are incredibly high. And at the end of my talk, I will be talking through what we think may happen at COP and keep your fingers crossed. So title of my book and my talk is How to Save Our Planet. And I have to say, I love this cartoon. The reason being is because for the last year and a half, two years, we have been focused on dealing with a global pandemic. Our lives are completely changed. And hey, this is why we're on Zoom all together, because we've learned how to interact in different ways. And it's all about flattening the curve to try and actually save the NHS and save sort of people's lives. But it's interesting because, of course, the discourse about nature, globalization, and all of those issues hasn't gone away. And actually climate change got louder, if anything, in the last year and a half. So that's the wave that's going to come crashing over us in the future. So the key thing is that climate change, the science of it is really, really old. I mean, if we look back to say Eunice Foote, who basically 150 years ago, she first showed the greenhouse effect. So she took two test tubes, one with carbon dioxide, one with air. She put them outside in the sunlight with a thermometer in each. And she noticed that, of course, the one with the CO2 heated up quicker, got to a higher temperature and lost its heat slower than the normal air. Five years later, John Tyndall at the Royal Institution in London built this incredible piece of kit to actually use thermal couples to measure the amount of heat absorbed. And Eunice Foote saw that the greenhouse gas meant that that's why we kept the actual climate warm. And John Tyndall was the one that realized that at the moment, the most important greenhouse gas was, of course, water vapor, followed by carbon dioxide. 
So what is climate change? So if you think about the sun's energy, it is mainly uh, light. There's a little bit of sort of like uh, uh, UV and a little bit of infrared, but most of it is light energy. So it passes through the atmosphere as if the atmosphere isn't there. Apart from UV radiation, which is captured and basically absorbed by ozone, which is good because it stops us getting from skin cancer and stops long-term DNA damage on life on Earth. But the majority of that light passes through the atmosphere as if it's not there. A third of it reflects straight back into space off of white clouds, white ice sheets, and is lost straight into space. That other two-thirds hits the Earth. And if for a moment you can think of not my talk, but actually lying on a tropical beach. There you are. You've got your favorite cocktail. Mine's a mojito. Okay. Think about what your one is. And you're lying in the sunshine. And that sun's energy is hitting you. And you feel hot. The reason being is the light has converted to heat on your skin. And you're radiating that heat away from your body. So you don't basically frizzle. Exactly the same happens to the earth. It radiates the heat back. This is where the greenhouse gas is coming, because they trap some of that heat, as Eunice Foote showed, hold on for, for a little while, and then release it. So that keeps the actual atmosphere and the Earth warmer than it would be. Strip out all of those greenhouse gases, which are in order of importance are water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxides, and then really nasty things like CFCs. Take them all out and the temperature of the atmosphere and the Earth would drop by about 35 degrees Celsius. So that is an English summer of about ooh, minus 15, and an English summer, uh, English winter, about minus 30 degrees. Okay, So therefore, greenhouse gases, tick, good for the planet. We actually knew about global warming in 1938. Guy Callender published this work. He put together 147 weather stations from around the world. He saw that there was an upward warming trend through particularly uh, the 20s and the 30s. He also had a few measurements of CO2 from around the world and saw that that was going up. And he basically put two and two together and said, well, the greenhouse gases are increasing because of all this burning particularly of coal in those days, and therefore this was warming up. So we knew about climate change in 1938. So of course, the first detailed records of CO2 were started in 1958 by Keeling, and this is from his uh, observatory in Mauna Loa, and as you can see, it's gone up every single year, and basically has hit 50% higher than the pre-industrial time. It's at the highest level for three million years. And you'll hear people talking about, oh, we've hit 411 parts per million. And that doesn't really help. Parts per million sounds really small. But what we do is we have to look at where have we been in the past. So this is where the amazing ice cores come in because uh, colleagues of mine, they drill in Antarctica and Greenland and extract the core of ice. And as you can see, the ice has these incredible bubbles. That's ancient air that's been trapped in the ice. And if you can extract it really carefully, you can measure the carbon dioxide and the methane in that ancient air, a direct measurements. 
And as you can see, for the last 800,000 years, both methane and CO2 have gone up and down with the ice ages. So if we look at CO2, an ice age is about 200 parts per million, and interglacial, such as we are in now, is about 280 parts per million. And yeah, we've gone to 411. So we have almost doubled the amount of CO2 that was in the atmosphere during the last ice age. If we look at methane, we've almost tripled the amount in the atmosphere. So we've already moved the world out of its normal cycles and causing significant climate change. But what climate change? Again, this is where we have to look at the evidence. What parts of our climate system are changing? And again, when dealing with all those climate deniers and skeptics out there, we have to actually really home in on the evidence. So if any of you out there like skiing, like snowboarding and all the snow sports, yeah. So Northern Hemisphere snow cover has been dropping markedly since the 1960s. Summer Arctic sea ice extent we know is shrinking markedly. Also, we have Roger Harriban of the BBC who goes up there every summer to report on it. It feels a bit like Roger's sort of like summer holiday. He always goes up there and points and points out quite rightly that the sea ice is melting. For me, one of the most worrying ones is the actual change in the heat content of the upper ocean. The reason being is an Earth system scientist, I realize that 70% of the world is actually water. It's the oceans. And actually, if that heat capacity is building up as it is, that's really worrying. We also know that sea level has changed and has gone up by about 24 centimeters in the last 100 years. And that's starting to accelerate because it's no longer just the thermal expansion of the ocean, but we're adding in now meltwater from, of course, Greenland and the Western Antarctic ice sheet, which are starting to melt faster than we expected. So many of you will have seen this. This is the wiggly curve of annual temperature because the atmosphere is a much more volatile sort of uh, uh, liquid, if you think about it, than the oceans. And the key thing to remember is 2020 and 2016 were joint warmest years on record. You can see the warming in the middle in the 20s to the 40s that Guy Callender saw. There's this pause and then there's this strong warming from the 60s to the present day. Now, I presented multiple data because that's NASA, NOAA and Met Office because you should never look at just one data set. But again, many people and actually most people, let's be honest, really don't get on with graphs unless it's basically showing their bank account going up really nicely. So Ed Hawkins from Reading University, a brilliant professor of climatology, has produced the warming stripes. And so you can download this data for every country in the world and most major cities. So you can actually have your own climate stripes covering the data of that era. So here is London, London from 1850 to 200, 2020, and you can see changes of temperature of almost three degrees from one, minus 1 1.6 to plus 1.6. Now, of course, this has started a little bit of a, I would say, cottage industry, okay? So you can have it on a tie. You can have it on a Tessa. Now, 
If you can afford a Tesla, you can definitely afford to wrap it, okay? T-shirts, and of course, uh, leggings. And when Ed Hawkins went to get his uh, MBE uh, at the palace, he wore a Climate Stripes mask. Excellent. Right, so that's the evidence. So as scientists, we want to know about the future. We want to be able to uh, give you ideas of what the future could look like. Now, of course, as a scientist, we want to experiment. So I'd like to have lots of little Earths so I can actually torture them, make sure that one has a double CO2, half the CO2, except we only have one pristine, beautiful planet. So therefore, next best thing is we build a model of it. And it's very simple. It's a grid around the Earth. We then have layers that go into the ocean, into the land, into the vegetation, and into the atmosphere. And the physics is really good. I mean, we understand thermodynamics. We understand fluid dynamics. We understand the chemistry that's going on. And those are all put into the models. On the right-hand side, I like presenting this because I think people need to realize that the models have got so much better over the last sort of 30 years. So the first assessment exercise of the IPCC in 1990, as you can see, the grids that we were using for the models were 500 kilometers by 500 kilometers, which allows me to do a Brexit joke and says, look, in 1990, Britain really was part of Europe. And as you can see, as we've gone through all of these assessment exercises, we've now got down to less than 100 kilometers. But the really interesting thing is, even though the actual amount of modeling, the different systems that we've put in, the actual resolution of the models have grown astronomically, guess what? All the models since 1990 say the same thing because the physics is simple. More greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, warms up the atmosphere, you get climate change. All the models now, sophisticated enough, what they can do is now tell you what are the impacts of those changes in a much more detailed way. So what does the future look like? Now, the interesting thing is, I said, the science is really good in the models. What's the biggest problem? Yeah, you lot. And by you lot, I mean the whole population of the planet. Okay, so we're not sure how many people are going to be on the planet by the middle of the century. We think there could be an extra 2 billion, but the UN has an EBA bar of plus or minus half a billion people. Can you imagine having that in science? Hmm, yeah, well, you know, it's about a billion, give or take. Um, we don't know how much they're going to actually emit. We don't know what sort of economy we're going to have. And so what the scientists with social scientists and economists have built are scenarios, stories of the future. So these are some stories. So the red one is that we don't have climate policies or the climate policies that we have, we don't implement properly. And therefore, we would have temperature rises by the end of the century, 4.1 to 5.4 degrees. The current policies, if they are 100% effective, could keep current change to 3.1 to 3.7 degrees above pre-industrial. The pledges that were made as part of the Paris Agreement 
that could actually keep us to 2.6 to 3.2. And then the green pathways. These are really important. These are political pathways. One is the two-degree pathway. It's all countries in the world mandated at the Paris Agreement in 2015. They would keep the world to below two degrees warming. And then there's also that aspirational pathway, which is one and a half degrees underneath. So is it still possible? Does COP provide us with a way of doing that? So let's summarize. So what are the effects of climate change? So we're going to have more extreme storms, floods, droughts, heat waves, and wildfires. But I put a caveat on that as well. We're also going to have those in places we've never had them before. And of course, humans work on predictability. So if you have a storm and a place that's not used to storms, then you're going to have real problems. It may lead to food and water insecurity. But I put a caveat there as well. We currently have enough food to feed 10 billion people on the planet. There are only 7.9 billion, but 825 million people go to bed feeling hungry every night. That's more about politics and money, because why do people starve? Because they do not have the money to buy the plentiful food that we have on the planet. Some people also say it may lead to migration and conflict. Now, we all know that migration is a complicated uh, problem and issue. People move for many different reasons. And actually, many times, it's an incredibly positive experience for them and the host country. And we also know from conflict that humans really don't need excuses to actually have conflict. However, the key thing is that climate change will be a threat multiplier. It will make things more stressful and therefore will allow people to force migration and actually have conflict if they so wish. But it does not, climate change does not cause migration or conflict. People do. So the Paris Agreement is an incredible sort of like agreement and it was basically saying we need to cut global emissions to net zero during the 21st century. <coughs> now, they were very open about this. Achieving this will require a complete transformation of energy generation, industry, infrastructure, and personal behaviors. Yeah, so not very much then. Right, let's look at this challenge. So the challenge is that, as you can see, the historic CO2 emissions have gone up hugely to above 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. Now, if we want to stick to the one and a half degrees pathway, we need to drop globally to net zero. Think about that for a moment. That means that if we emit any carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we have to have a way of sucking it back out through reforestation, through direct air capture, through biofuels. Just imagine a world with zero emissions, okay? Remember, at the moment, 80% of the world's energy is produced by fossil fuels. And then, 
and this is something scientists sort of forget to tell you, depending on how quickly we do that, depends how much CO2 we need to suck out of the atmosphere, here you are, in the second half of the century because we've overshot. Now, of course, had we started all of this 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years ago, or even in 1989 when Margaret Thatcher stood up in the UN and told the leaders of the world they had to deal with climate change, we would be halfway there already. So, did COVID-19 make a difference? Because we all stopped doing stuff. We stopped flying, we stopped using our cars, we stopped getting on trains. Our life seemed to cease. We were just at home on Zoom. Okay. Well, it basically dropped CO2 emissions by 7%. And I suddenly realized that when I was communicating this, people went, oh, that's good. And then I realized that's the wrong way of saying it. What we should be saying is emissions were 93% of what they were in 2019, which if you have a look at it, is exactly the same as 2006. So we're still pumping huge amounts into the atmosphere. And this is the report that came out today that says actually CO2 in the atmosphere is at its highest level ever recorded by humans. Because we realize that actually most of these emissions are from energy generation. I'll give you an example. South Korea, all of its electricity is generated from 60 coal-fired power stations. We also remember that everything has to be shipped and moved around by shipping or by flying because of all of our trade and our need for uh, products and food and agriculture. So those things didn't cease when we were confined due to COVID. But it's a real wake-up call. It says that individually, we cannot solve this. It has to be win-win solutions involving three different groups. So again, I am a great believer that actually everything we can do to decarbonize our economy actually makes our lives better, whether it's we are healthier, whether we're wealthier, or well, basically we're just safer. So what is my mantra? My mantra is this is a tripartite. We need governments, corporations, and individuals to all step up to make sure we get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And each one has a unique role to play and is essential. And if we do it right, the uh, down draw project basically went through every single possible solution and worked out that despite certain MPs and lobbying groups going, oh, it's going to cost us so much to go net zero. Yeah, actually, it saves the world about $46 trillion. That's half the current world annual GDP. That's a lot of money to save. So interestingly enough, going net zero, I'm going to argue is better for you and me, better for most people, and also saves us a huge amount of money. So what are the possible government actions to get to net zero? So Boris, if you're listening, this is your tick list, okay? Support renewable energy. No brainer, okay? Why should we be beholden to Russian or Qatari gas 
when we can basically generate most of our energy ourselves safely within our own national borders and of course fix the price. Tax fossil fuels, cut fossil fuel subsidies. Fossil fuel subsidies have been estimated by the International Energy Authority to be nearly five trillion dollars. That's twice the GDP of the United Kingdom. Okay, so why are we sponsoring companies to pollute the world? Support electric cars and electric public transport. Again, I have to say I have to go sometimes on the radio and actually uh, talk about why it's not necessarily in the United Kingdom better to go on a train than a car. Because guess what? Not all our trains are electrified in the United Kingdom. Some of them are still diesel. Carbon neutral buildings and retrofitting, reforest, rewilding, huge areas of the United Kingdom that we could basically reforest and rewild. Promote low emissions farming and diet. Support and expand the emission trading schemes that we have both here and in Europe and actually start joining those up around the world. So the green economy, is this some sort of like strange thing that needs to grow? Well, it's with us and people don't seem to realize how big it is. So this is a beautiful wheel diagram done by my ex-PhD student, Lucian Jordson, who's now gone on to greater and better things. And we estimated from transactional data, so real money numbers, that 2018, 2019, the global green economy was 10 trillion dollars that's a ninth of the world economy uk green economy sales were over 328 billion and employed over 2 million people so this is it because the green economy is in everything and it's not oh look here's a coal-fired power station or here is a oil well and because it gets into almost all industries it's very difficult to see that it's already here and is also huge Again, you notice that democratic presidents keep basically investing in the green economy because that's where the biggest growth is in jobs. So what about companies? So being sustainable and actively caring about the environment is actually really good for business. So the CDP has uh, shown that corporations that actively manage and plan for climate change secure a 67% higher return than companies who refuse to disclose their carbon emissions. And we've had some quite amazing uh, announcements in the last two or three years. Microsoft. So Microsoft, they'll go carbon negative by 2030. Okay, big deal. But hey, UCL has announced they're going uh, carbon negative by 2030. So, you know, not that a big a deal. Except then what they said was, between 2030 and 2050, we will remove all the carbon pollution that we have created and that they have created through their supply and value chain since the founding of the company in 1975. That's huge, particularly as supply chains are about 11 and a half times the carbon emissions of the company. And they're going to basically say, we're just going to take our guilt we're going to take it all out of the atmosphere and basically have that all done by 2050. <coughs> um, Sky is already carbon neutral and has been from 2007. 
<coughs> but they're going to make sure their supply chain will be carbon negative by 2030. So therefore, any TV programs you see will be actual carbon negative. BP has declared that their company will be carbon neutral by 2050, eliminating offsetting about 450 million tons of carbon. But they still are going to be selling oil. I'll leave that one out there. So what can companies do? First thing is set transparent and meaningful greenhouse gas reduction targets. The public do not expect companies to go carbon net zero overnight. Okay, They expect it to be a journey. Switch to 100% renewable energy. No brainer. Engage employees in company sustainability agenda. They are your powerhouse. Use carbon neutral buildings, retrofit buildings. Offset emissions by reforestation and rewilding, but make sure they are gold standard and they are the very top and you monitor them. Link your ambition to your supply and value chain, as Microsoft has done. Lobby government to support change. This is one of the biggest complaints I have uh, from company CEOs. They go, we are doing our bit. We're trying to, but the government is lagging behind. We cannot do this because the government hasn't actually allowed us to do it. Empower entrepreneurs to drive the green innovation. And this is the one that most people are focused on because we're all individuals, so we want to care what we can do. So this is my wish list. And this is the, all these lists, by the way, are in the book. So plug over. <clears throat> Possible individual actions for climate change. Talk about it to everyone via social media, by the water cooler, at coffee time. I have seen so many organizations where a couple of people have been feeling anxiety about climate and sustainability, and they've talked about it to each other just over lunch or coffee, and they've gone, well, why can't we do something? And that, and I call them green viruses, because what happens is they start to infect everybody around them, and everybody gets enthusiastic, and actually then they spreads up to the CEO and down through the whole organization. And you suddenly find that these organizations can change overnight because of all that positivity. So what else can we do? Switch to a more plant-based diet, okay? Again, win-win. You'll live longer, you'll have less health conditions. Be very uh, positive about it because you're also helping to save the planet. What's the big no-no? <gasps> Red meat, bad, bad, bad for you and for the planet. Switch to renewable energy supply if you haven't already done so. Reduce, reuse, recycle more. We also need companies to think this through. I was at a huge recycling conference. Uh, they deal with all the waste, etc. And their biggest complaint is that companies do not plan their products to be disposed of. It's incredibly difficult to recycle certain things because the companies just don't care. They just produce their product and go, hey, it's optimized to work best. So you can reduce your consumption. The great thing about COVID, and there is only one really good thing about COVID, which is it has shown us what really matters. Okay, and what matters is friends and family. Being able to hug someone, actually talk to them without having glass or Zoom in between, and I think that's really important. It doesn't matter how many pairs of trainers you have, how many t-shirts, how many cars you have. COVID showed us that when the chips are down, 
it's those friendships and family that really matter. Use an electric or hybrid car or use public transport if you don't need a car. Stop flying and if you must through work or because you're desperate for that holiday, which, hey, most of us haven't been on, then offset that in some shape or form. And this is a really interesting one. If you have a pension, make sure it does not invest in fossil fuels. And if you have any investments, definitely don't put them in fossil fuels because they don't make as much money as the green economy. Oh, by the way, I forgot there. Look, I, my, my talk does link up. I forgot to actually push the button to show you. You can put your Tesla and put nice stripes on it. And the last two, protest. The power of protest has been amazing. So the school strikes have been incredible at moving the political dial. And also, of course, if you're lucky enough to live in a democracy, then you can vote for a government that actually cares about you, cares about the environment, and it cares about dealing with climate change. So, COP26, is this where we suddenly save the planet? Well, hold on. Okay, the first thing you have to remember is the Conference of the Parties, that's what COP stands for, is actually a limited, highly legal framework to produce agreements. Okay, and so therefore it can't do everything we want to save the planet. But there are some things that we really do need it to do. So I've got three things on my wish list for COP. Okay, so the first one is at the moment each country submits an NDC, and which is basically its contribution to cutting emissions. And it basically says, well, look, this is what we're going to do by 2030, this is what we're going to do by 2050, etc. However, even though the Paris Agreement says we must get to net zero by the middle of the century, those NDCs are not tied to that pathway. So you can have countries that have an NDC which are very shallow, and not even get to net zero until the end of the century, whereas others will be trying to get to net zero much quicker. So what we need at COP26 is an agreement that all country targets must align to the Paris target of 1.5 to 2 degrees temperature rise. It's a bit like sort of uh, how companies do it with their science-based targets, except we need science-based targets for countries. So we're all aligned and all going down as quick as possible together. Second thing we need is that 100 billion that's been promised to fund decarbonisation, particularly in least developed uh, countries. So this global green fund was agreed in 2009. It was ratified in 2010, but hasn't ever really made it to the 100 billion. Okay. So that's something that we need to agitate for in COP26, that actually the developed world actually steps up and actually produces that 100 billion per year. And actually that should be the minimum level of support because we do need to help development in the least developed economies in the world. We need to make sure that countries are compensated for moving away from fossil fuels if their economy uh, basically is dominated by it, but we also have to make sure that that fully aligns with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. 
What's my last one? My last wish list from COP26 is safeguarding natural carbon sinks. At the moment, the land and the ocean take up more than 50% of our carbon emissions. So for every tonne that goes into the atmosphere, half a tonne is basically taken back by nature. Thank you, nature. Nature also stores more carbon than we actually burn. So we need agreements on avoiding deforestation and promoting appropriate reforestation and rewilding. It's no good us basically sucking huge amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere, stop burning fossil fuel when we're basically devastating our forests around the world. We also need agreements about how we can change our agricultural practices and increase carbon storage in farmland and topsoils around the world. So those are my three wish lists, okay, which is all countries should be aligned to the Paris targets. We should have a hundred billion uh, dollars for the least developed countries to decarbonize. Actually, we need a lot more than that. And the last one is protect our natural carbon sinks. So that's COP. But what do we need to do post-COP? Well, post-COP, we must have an orderly, efficient, rapid, and fair end to the use of coal, oil, and gas. And we need to get rid of coal really, really quickly. Just to give you the scale of that, about a third of the energy flow around the world is still produced by coal. Okay, We need to get rid of that and swap that out as quick as possible. Then deal with gas and then deal with oil. The second thing, and these are both not part of the COP process, the second thing we need to do is restore the Earth's biosphere and environment so it continues to support and provide us into the future. We basically need to green the planet and bring it back to where it was so we get those ecosystem services. So I'd like to say thank you for listening and I'm very happy to take any questions. We do have a few questions and of course if you want to continue to ask questions of Mark please post them in Slido. Um, so just a reminder that you were that you did receive the link via email. So let's go ahead and get started with the first question here, which is from Jess. And Jess asks, do you think it's productive to be talking about and aiming for real zero as opposed to net zero? Oh, so this is uh, certain of my scientific colleagues have criticized net zero because um, they feel that the whole idea of net zero encourages companies and countries not to cut their emissions. And I can understand that as a, uh, as a way of thinking, but the problem is by 2050, there will still be emissions from agriculture, from basically using sort of uh, oil to produce plastics. The idea that we can just stop emitting any carbon, any greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is scientifically unrealistic. It's just not going to happen. So therefore, the net zero approach is, well, hang on, if we're still going to have stuff going into the atmosphere, we need a way of balancing it and pulling it out of the atmosphere. So there's nothing inherently wrong with net zero. It's just that we must hold the companies and countries to account to make sure that they're reducing their emissions as quick as possible. And then the stuff that's really difficult to get to, we then basically uh, offset or we remove from the atmosphere. Uh, how can Ooh. we shop ethically and be aware of and avoid greenwashing brands? I think 
as consumers, we need to be proactive in looking at what is going to be a green product, what is going to be sort of like a good sustainable item. However, what I get frustrated about is actually government provides regulation, government provides guidelines, they actually provide the framework. So it'd be so much easier if we had governments around the world that are actually giving us a helping hand and going, this is the carbon footprint of item X, or this is actually a traffic light system of how sustainable something is. So I think it's a dual thing. We need to ask companies to make sure that they're much more clear about what they are doing. I also think it's about trusting certain brands and they building up that trust so you know that certain companies are never going to greenwash you. I also think that it's about government putting in regulation to make sure that we can do the right thing and we actually have that proper choice. At the moment it's really difficult. You go in and look at two items that are exactly the same. I can't tell, and I work on this, I can't tell which is going to be the more sustainable and so therefore I think we need much better regulation to allow us and help consumers. Considering we have so much of our goods that are transported via ships and ships can often be in international waters and regulated by, by governments, are there options available for the maritime sector to go carbon neutral? So I think that we have to look at both how we ship things and how we actually fly because a lot of goods are actually flown. So I think the interesting thing is one, can we change the incentives so the actual cost of the actual pollution is with the actual items that are being taken across? And I think that will add to uh, the cost of purchasing something. And that actually then, and money is a really good way of influencing uh, behavior. So again, can we produce a sort of artificial kerosene? Yeah, absolutely. Can we force, uh, maritime uh, transport to offset, we can. So I think there are lots of options there to actually mitigate that. Um, and again, at the end of the day, it's a small component, but important. But again, it's about dealing with those sort of uh, uh, things. So for example, the AV, International Aviation uh, Body has decided that any increase in aviation over its 1990 levels, not 2020, because of course there was no flying, at uh, 2019 levels, every airline is going to have to offset. So there's going to be a huge in, uh, increase in the amount of companies offsetting. And for me, that's a concern because I need to get those rules right, I think, around the world. So we make sure that when somebody offsets one tonne of carbon, it really comes out of the atmosphere. And I think we need much stricter rules. And there's a huge task force, which was supposed to actually give its wonderful sort of uh, announcement at COP, but I'm waiting for that. You think COP should be over Zoom rather than world leaders flying in from all over the world? I've been to other COPs. And actually, the interesting thing is that when people meet face to face, agreements get made. I love Zoom. Zoom is brilliant for communicating like this, running workshops, etc. But if you want to make hard decisions 
and you want to persuade leaders of the world to change the whole direction of their economy and their country, you need to stare them in the eye and basically say, this is the way we're going. And so unfortunately, no, it is essential that we have all the diplomats there. It's essential that the negotiators are there. And it's essential that the world leaders turn up to ratify anything that's agreed. But please remember, this is just part of the process. So the COP process goes on every single day of every single year, and it's a continual process. This is just the high point where hopefully at an international agreement. So no, unfortunately you cannot run an international agreement between 197 countries on Zoom. What will be your course of action if COP fails to deliver? So COP26 isn't going to fail, okay, because the Paris Agreement is there underlying it, okay, because we've got Paris in 2015, which was incredible. I hate to say this, but the French were magnificent and got this agreement. So that underlies everything. And so the NDCs and all of this process is there. I think where actually COP26 could fail is if we do not have the ambition we don't lift the ambition. And I think that's why COP26 is so important, because we need to build on Paris and push the ambition up. Now, if that doesn't occur, then we're going to have to use other processes and other COP meetings to do it. But it's really interesting that if you've seen the announcements, I mean, in the last 12 months, the USA is going to half their emissions by 2030 and hit net zero by 2050. The EU will drop their emissions by 55% by 2030, net zero by 2050. UK, 78% cut on their 1990 levels by 2030, and then hit net zero by 2050. And then China, peak their emissions by 2030, and then we'll hit net zero by 2060. So we're already seeing, oh, and I think the uh, uh, UEA, uh, today announced that they're also going net zero by 2050. So countries are going to come out with more and more. So it's basically lifting the ambition. Will it be big enough? Will it be? No, not for me. But of course, we keep trying to actually push countries to do better and better. On a related note, how would you counter the argument that smaller countries like the UK don't make a lot of difference if China and the US didn't decarbonize? So that's a really interesting one and one that a lot of climate skeptics use, which is, well, we're Britain, we only have 1% of the global emissions, etc., etc. It doesn't matter what we do. Of course it matters what we do. One, we have a huge historic legacy. So if we look and bottle CO2 from the atmosphere and go, oh, look, let's separate it into human-produced CO2 and natural. If you look at the human-produced, a third of it came from the USA, a third of it came from Europe, and a third of it came from the rest of the world. So we already have a historic legacy of polluting the atmosphere for over 150 years. Okay, So we have a duty of care to actually remove that uh, as quickly as possible. It's also, if the fifth richest economy in the world, the UK, can decarbonize, boost the economy, make everybody healthier, and actually start exporting all this incredible green technology around the world, other countries are going to go, 
I'm going to do that as well. And so therefore, it's about leadership. It's about countering that whole argument. Oh, it's going to cost, it's going to cause our economic collapse, etc. No, of course it isn't. Switching to renewables, protecting uh, your energy sources, protecting people from fuel poverty, all good. So I would counter that argument and say, we have a huge historic legacy that we have to deal with, and that's our guilt. And two, we can actually continue to lead the world and produce incredible technology to help everybody else decarbonize as quick as possible. Related to uh, COVID, um, the conditions meant that we had to follow certain rules, stay indoors, wear a mask, and many, many other sacrifices. <laughs> Do you think there will be a need for climate change rules or requirements? Again, I think that is, if governments really thought about it, a lot of the things that we want to change. So for example, and this will go back to your research, it would be incredible if all our vehicles in cities were electric because that would half the air pollution coming from transport, which would mean air pollution is better. It, uh, sorry, air quality is better. It means people are healthier. And guess what? We spend less money on the NHS. So there's lots of things that actually, if we do it properly, we actually improve our lives. And so therefore, I would say it's really about thinking through, not what the individuals can do, but how government can actually incentivize us to do the right thing which is ultimately better for us so one of them is like diet i mean if we could just have some uh, perhaps taxation on highly processed meat on salt and sugar in sort of like prepared meals and actually then have some subsidies on sort of like healthier foods suddenly we could lift the population out of this morass of cheap processed food which is incredibly bad for you and actually help lift a country out of that out of obesity guess what everybody lives longer everybody's healthier and there's huge cuts in the costs of the health service all win-win and this is what frustrates me because many of the politicians go oh it's going to cost us so much to go carbon zero what they don't realize is all the positive benefits, all the health benefits, all the cost benefits of people being healthier. So no, I would say it's much more about government setting the regulation, companies actually uh, greening up and basically going, we're going to be able to supply that, and then individuals making choices because they are given really helpful hints, like plastic bags. Buying a plastic bag in a supermarket makes really no financial difference to your life. But it's messaging. It's about, oh, I've remembered, I've got to do the right thing. I mean, if you go out in 10 years' time and you're driving your diesel car around, you're going to be a pariah. People are just going to go, I'm driving my little electric car. You know, you're dirty. So, yes. So, I think, again, it's about managing those expectations. You mentioned electric cars in your previous response twice, and we have two questions, so I'm going to slam Ooh, them together. Go for it. Um, <laughs> one is on, oh, and it's just disappeared because it's moved, whether you think that electric cars will come down in price so that they would be more accessible. And then isn't there the potential issue that electric cars that require things like rare earth metals might lead to some unintended consequences related to the environment? Okay. 
So I'm going to deal with the second one first because this one comes up all the time, which is a classic skeptic's uh, climate deniers approach, which is the rare earth elements that causes so much more extra mining and stuff like all the human uh, rights violation that goes with it. So I tweeted today uh, a lovely study that shows if we move away from fossil fuels, even with all of the rare earth elements, all the nickel, cobalt, and all of those minerals that we need for the green revolution, we will still reduce the amount of mining on the planet. People don't realize how destructive coal mining is. You go to the USA or to Australia, and they literally just chop the tops of mountains, okay, and basically just dig it all out. And so people, I think, have this sort of like, notion because it exists it doesn't cause an issue and again if you've ever seen the awful images of gas flaring and oil pollution in developing countries because they don't have strict environmental regulations absolutely awful so will we need more mining absolutely can we get rare earth elements uh, in different areas not ones that they are currently mining absolutely they're everywhere we just have to go and properly mine them. Can we actually improve human rights in those countries? Absolutely. Okay. So just because a rare earth element is being dug up in a country which has poor human rights is not because of the minerals there. It's because of the government and the lack of support for the local people. So therefore, as an international community, because those things are important, we need to help countries develop, but also develop that sort of system of supporting people's rights. So it's a very convoluted bit. So that's the first question. I've forgotten what the second one was. It was about whether you had any hunch of the price going down <laughs> for electric vehicles oh, anytime absolutely. soon. <laughs> oh, well, that really, oh, so that depends on government. Okay, because if you mandate by 2025, there can be no petrol cars sold in this country. Okay, boom. Okay, and diesel, definitely diesel. Okay, if you said that in four years' time, you have to buy an electric car. Again, the price will plummet. Also, we have Brexit, so you can do really interesting things. I mean, this is where the government hasn't quite thought through their own sort of like exciting adventure into Brexit land, which is you can just say, okay. If you buy a British-built sort of uh, electric car, okay, and it's guaranteed that it's been built in one of our plants, uh, you'll get a £5,000 subsidy to buy British. Boom! You know, you start building up the electric car industry in this country, you basically get the price of electric cars down, and you can do it like that. However, one thing I will say is the only way that's going to work is if government realizes that we need proper infrastructure. This is what governments do really well, okay? If they do it, they build infrastructure. So do we need an electrified sort of that wiry line across the north of England? Absolutely. Do we need all of our, our train lines to be electrified? Yes. Do we need electric charging points in every single city, in almost every parking place? Yes. Do they have to have the same plug? Yes. Do they happen to have the same charge? Okay, why should different companies charge you different for electricity? Because you happen to be in the centre of Leeds or the centre of Manchester. 
Okay, we need to standardize things and make sure it's easier for the punter, i.e. you and I, to basically drive an electric car and charge it up. And as soon as everybody's driving electric cars, oh my word, the technology will improve very quickly. I will just do this. Look how quickly the phone got better when people started buying them. So again, it's all about using the market forces to get what we want, which is decent electric cars, which are easy to recycle. One of the other things I tweeted today is that a lot of people think that if you build the batteries in the right way, then we can just keep recycling them and recycling the material. So unlike coal, you burn, it goes into the atmosphere, the amount of mining you need, if you keep this circular economy going, will drop off during this century. We are running out of time, so I'm sorry if I didn't get to, to all of your questions, but we should wrap up. And I just wanted to say thank you very much, Mark, for such a fabulous talk. No doubt I speak for everyone else uh, that has provided us with some real concrete ways that we can take action to curb our influence on climate. Um, I would also like to remind you of the next lunch hour lecture taking place, and this is next week, Tuesday at 1 to 2 p.m. on how can fairer finance help us address climate change. There's also a new Generation One podcast series that's launching on the 3rd of November, and details of that are on the One Generation, Generation One website. Um, so before we close, I'd just like to say thank you to all of you for attending and providing us with insightful questions, and also to our speaker, Mark, for a gripping presentation.